Um, last week, I had the privilege to go to Houston. Um, I had a dear friend that I met in 1991. I was a senior in high school at that time. So my friend uh, was basically, he, he's, he's been single uh, for 45 years, and we used to say, hey, it doesn't look like you're going to get married, but we'll pray that if it's God's will that you would get married. And But until then, we'll consider you a bachelor to the rapture. In other words, you're single until, you know, God raptures you back home. But I guess God had other mind, other plans in mind. It hasn't raptured yet, and he went and got married the last Saturday. But um, we had the privilege to come out as a number of men to, to bless him, to have a, we'll say, a godly uh, bachelor party. And it's, it's an honor for me, who's 47, to be a part of a bachelor party, even at this age, to encourage him. And just to be just to remember God's faithfulness and answering prayers in his life. But I do want to highlight one thing we went on this trip. We did rock climbing and that was cool. But the thing that I remember most is we went to this brand new building. It's this huge, it's three story tall, it's a big old warehouse. And basically inside it they had a racetrack where they had these little go-karts that it's not gas, gas operated, it's all electric. And you, you'd race around super, super fast at like 40, 45 miles an hour. And then they had these games. We were playing Pac-Man and Space Invaders with these big game consoles like on screens about 12 feet by 12 feet. But the, the, one, the game that caught my attention the most were these virtual reality games where they strap you up in devices and... <clears throat> They put these big goggles on you, and they're, they're 3D, and so you turn around, you see stuff. You look up, you see stuff. You look down, you actually see your toes. And it's just crazy. And so these are these virtual reality games. And so there are four of them, and I'll just tell you about one of them. One of them was in a room. Yeah, <laughs> this one was for four people, and so there's four of us playing, and they strapped these computerized things on your foot. It's like this kind of like a big old elastic thing. You put them over your shoes, and then underneath it, it has sensors. And then you put this thing around your waist so you can't run, and you stand in this kind of metal dish. And so literally we chose the game Zombie, and we have, <laughs> we have these um, two little plastic game consoles in our hand, which are basically our guns. One was a sword, and one's a gun. And literally, you see all these zombies chasing after you, and you naturally think, Oh, no, I got to run. And so you're running in place, but you're running your hardest really, really fast. And I'm like, oh, no, there's zombies this way. So you're running this way. They're behind me. I'm running this way. So I'm every running every which direction. And <coughs> and there's this belt around you. It's like kind of compressing your gut in. And <laughs> it was like, I don't even know how long the game was. this four or five minutes? But it was intense because, like, there's these zombies chasing you, and I just don't want them to get me. And But I was, like, shooting my gun like crazy, trying to kill these things that are actually dead, but they're walking. Um, <clears throat> and it felt like it was real. And when I came out, I wanted to literally barf. I was gagging. <laughs> I, I hated it. I, I, it was just, like, terrible. My stomach hurt. And I, I went to the, what's that called, the concession stand in my can you please give me some Sprite really quick? My stomach is super queasy. I'm going to vomit. So this is what I'm doing with this virtual reality video game. And so it felt so real. But guess what? 
was not real. There was no zombies chasing me. All these things were uh, electric um, or computerized devices. And so, like, you're like, Gary, where are you going with this? And I want to say that there's something about this virtual experience, and there are a number of other virtual experiences that made me sick. Everyone, I could go, I just want to try it. And everyone I went on just made me sick. I just felt like so sick inside. It did, it did not satisfy. I liked the real race car, but I didn't like the virtual Mario Andretti car. Either. That made me sick. Every time I crashed, it made it look like I flipped over and landed on my head. I felt like I flipped over and landed on my head. I just wanted to barf. And so where am I going with this? As I step back and I think of our, our Christian lives or what we describe to be our Christian lives, I, I, to, I want to say all Christendom, but there's a portion of Christendom that I, I want to say is living a type, a form of virtual Christianity. See, where am I going with this? Okay, It, it comes in a couple of ways. Um, we are so wired up with social media. Um, Sometimes we're literally like at meals and you're social meeting or whatever. And literally like you're on the phone talking to someone and you're still looking at social media. Um, it, is, it is crazy how social media has hijacked us in so many ways. Um, we get these sound bits and we think this is reality. <laughs> but it's this framed up information for you to be manipulated by or be informed. I mean, depending on what you're seeing in social media. But on top of that, I think sometimes we turn around and we're going to live our Christianity um, according to what's on social media. So we throw down our love. We put our little hearts. And we throw down our like Asian hate sticker and say, hey, we're, we, that covered us. We, we dealt with our Asian hate. And we put down a little BML sticker and, you know, we took, it, we took care of our, our BLness. And we, we feel like we've done our responsibility online. But in reality, my question is, what have we done in reality to combat, to be Christ, to impact the world around us with real people in real time? I bet you it's way more hours stacked on virtual reality than in real life. But it, I think the most fascinating thing is there's another group of people that will talk a big game. Like, we need to do this, and we need to do that. But they, again, their Christianity doesn't go beyond their talk. And there's another group that mentally thinks about this stuff all the time. And they'll talk to a lot of people about it online or in person. But the people that need to hear and see and experience the love of Christ aren't experiencing it in reality because our Christianity doesn't get beyond our head, doesn't get our beyond our conversation with each other, and doesn't get beyond our virtual living, which we think is real. I mean, I kind of thought the zombies were real. I, I understand the effect. It made me sick. They looked real. But it wasn't reality. Do you, do you understand what I'm talking about here? I, I've seen so much chatter, stuff going back and forth. But let me ask you, has your Christianity pushed you out beyond yourself to love those who need Christ, those who are marginalized? It sounds like I'm at the application already. Those who are experiencing injustice, 
And so this is what First Peter is all about in so many ways. Um, the people that Peter's addressing are going through persecution, real live persecution. Uh, I don't know what we think of persecution to things it, today. It's usually like things that don't go our way. Um, and we say, oh, I'm being persecuted because our opinions don't line up. Um, I don't even know if that's called persecution, but it, it annoys us and we think it's persecution today. But I want you to know there's real life, not virtual persecution going on here in First Peter. It's real life persecution. People are going through a hard time. They've been pushed out of their home. They're running for their actual physical lives. People are, are being um, killed, abused, beaten, flogged, stoned. And I'm, talk I'm not talking with uh, like you know, getting drunk and being stoned that way. I'm saying like actual rocks that really, really do hurt. Um, this is what's going on in the first century. And so just a little bit of background in, the, in terms of what's happening here. If I can remember correctly, Peter's trying to encourage this crowd. And he says, hey, you have been born again to a real hope, a living hope. And he says, you're not called to live like this world. You're called to live new and redeemed lives. And now these believers are worried about they're going to lose their homes. They're going to lose all these earthly possessions. So Peter comes back to that and says, hey, your true home is in heaven. Everything that is worth something eternally is in heaven. You have a future hope. And so, but he, and it gets really practical. How are, how, are, how are we to relate to our situations of suffering and, and trials? And so Peter basically says, submit yourself to Christ in relationship to the government. Submit yourself um, <clears throat> in relationship to Christ, in relationship to your husband-wife relationships. And now Peter comes and he says, and addresses the local church. And he reminds us um, that we are a chosen race. And he wants us badly to hear um, the narrative of the gospel in our minds. And so this was my introduction, but I'm going to bring this part into the introduction now. Constantly our mind is being bombarded by one or two by two different narratives, two different stories. I can, it's, it's that simple. <clears throat> you either hear the narrative of this world, the narrative of this fallen world, and, or you hear the narrative of the story of Jesus Christ, the redemptive story of what Christ has done. And so those are the two competing stories in our mind over and over and over. And usually we replay the story over and over. And sometimes we take the two stories and we mix them up. And we're like, uh, I don't know what to do. I kind of do a little bit of Christian thing and I kind of do this other thing. And it's kind of a bad thing. <clears throat> and so as you walk down uh, these two narratives, I want you to think about, you know, what narrative are you listening to? What narrative are you buying into? What narrative is playing out in your mind and in your real life, not your virtual life? And this is nothing new. Nothing new in the sense that from the very, very get-go, there were two narratives with Adam and Eve. Literally, Eve and Adam, Adam and Eve, literally got the right narrative, the right story from the get-go. And literally, I don't even know how much time transpired, but Satan, in the skies of a serpent, starts talking to Eve and giving her what? A mixed narrative. 
of half-truth, of partial truth. But because she wants instant gratification, she wants a soundbite of information, kind of like our social media, kind of like our news, she's willing to take the shortcut. What gratifies the, 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 the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, more quickly. So she buys into that narrative, and we know the story. All of humanity plunges into a fallen world. And this is what I believe is happening today. We're in an all-out battle. Satan is throwing scheme after scheme after scheme at us. And guess what? I think Christians are getting duped left and right. We're falling for these schemes. We think we're living the Christian life. But I beg to differ. It's not, the Christian life is just not in your mind, and it's not virtually. It's not just what you chat about with each other. At the end game, it has to, you got to say and ask yourself, is this playing out in real life, real actual life, in real relationships? So this is what Peter's addressing today. So <clears throat> I feel like I'm already at the application first, but it's okay. Here comes the meat of the deal, and here comes the real scripture. Peter's basically saying, hey, it is time to examine our lives, to examine where our roots are really rooted in. Are they rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, or are they rooted in the other narrative, the narrative of this fallen world? In other words, when you think of our roots, is where our heart is. And so as you think of 1 Peter, as we put our mind around 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, I want you to ask yourself really carefully, and may the Spirit of God help you weed out the bad roots um, in your heart. That we may love one another, because that's where it's coming right now. Jesus addressed how we are to relate to the world in a marriage relationship. Now he's talking about how is a church to relate to one another. Okay? And so, I believe as we go into this passage, the Holy Spirit, in conjunction with the Word of God, wants to weed out. And I'm going to throw out a tough word here. He wants to weed out the complacency. The complacency in our Christian lives. He wants to read out the complacency in our Christian lives because there is much complacency there, big time. So let's dive into this. Our complacency in relationship to God and relationship toward how we relate to each other and relationship, our complacency in relationship to actually engaging the community. You know, we have this statement that we have on our website. The fact that it's on our website doesn't mean anything whatsoever. It's just digital material online, all right? What matters if it actually affects us to such a degree that it translates our life in such a way that we really are the hands and feet, that our lives really touch one another. And so we're going to look at what this looks like. The first one I want you to look at is the roots, <coughs> roots in the gospel produce Christ-likeness fruit in reality. So if your lives, your heart, your thoughts are truly rooted in the gospel, it will produce Christ-like fruit. There's a direct correlation between where your roots are and the fruit that is displayed and is reflected in our lives. And so in, this, in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, Peter is going to do something. He says, finally, all of you. So usually you use the word finally, think of the end of the chapter. Well, we're at the end of this first half of 1 Peter, where he's addressed our eternal hope and everything I talked about. He says, finally, he wants to pause. He wants to wrap up. He wants to summarize. And he wants to know if his audience and of us today, if we get this stuff in this moment, in real time, in 
reality, not virtual reality. And who's he addressing? Well, it says all of you. He says, it says all of you, the old, the young, the new, the old, the children, the adults, and people from college all the way through their 90s. I don't know if there are people in their hundreds. And for us, it's all of us. And I point to myself first. I point to myself first. As I point to you, I got three fingers shooting back at me. I'm asking myself, as I look at this passage, what does it have to say about me first? And I'll confess to you straight up. I have failed you and I have failed the Lord in so many ways in this season. But at the same, season, at the same token, I have learned a lot in this season. And I feel like I have grown a lot in this season. And I have met with more people. I've tried to engage with more people than I've ever had that are not like me for the sake of the gospel. Because I go, I'm not just going to put my stickers on the website and the Facebook. I want to know people who are hurting, who are experiencing injustice. Because I want to take my theology, live it out in real life, and see what the, God, the Lord would have. So I've invested time significantly with marginalized people, with people who face injustice in this season. But I also know I have failed in this process too. I failed you. I probably failed my wife and kids. And I failed my, my relationship with the Lord in, in this whole juncture. There's success and there's failures all in the mix of it. So I'm finally to my first few words. Let's go, let's go through this. Peter's going to come out with a, with a five-fold framework of love. And he breaks it down in a really tangible way of what it looks like to love one another. The first one he puts out there is unity. Unity is a big deal. Satan loves a church that is ununified, that, that likes to fuss over little things and minor and tiny little things. And deep down below that, he, he's exposing our self-sufficiency, our pride, our self-centeredness, our immaturity, our low view of God. And deep down, more than anything, when we have discontentment and disunity in life and church, it shows that our roots are extremely shallow in the gospel and probably more deeper in the other narrative, the other story. Francis Chan wrote a book recently that came out. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's very helpful. I would love to preach this whole book, but we don't have time right now. Um, but it's entitled, Until Unity. Peter says here, we are to have unity of mind. Literally, it's called same think. To be harmonious. And <clears throat> Pastor Francis Chan basically is looking out at the landscape of the American church. And so he writes his book, Until Today. And he says a few things that I brought. I want to just raise here. Um, we probably need a study in this whole entire book in the near future. But he says this, he says, Scripture is absolutely clear, <coughs> excuse me, unity is absolutely clear from Scripture that God passionately desires supernatural unity in his church. Unity is what Jesus prays for. It's what Jesus commands. It's what he says will be our greatest witness to the world. If unity is so important, to the heart of God, why is the church one of the most divided groups on earth? The real problem, um, Francis Chan says, is the shallowness and non-existence of our love 
for each other. It's rooted because we are rooted in shallowness and our shallow understanding of the gospel. But he's hopeful. He goes, what, this is what desperately needs to change. The church is falling apart and is unutified because the narrative of this world is louder than the narrative of the gospel. And he goes on. And here's the hope right here. He says, hey, the reason that God has gifted the church with pastors and teachers and prophets and evangelists and so forth is so that what? They could equip God's people in such a way to lead people in the unity of faith according to Ephesians chapter 3 verse, I mean 4 verse 13. But he says at the same time, sadly, that the church has done a poor job at this. But again, he says, comma, but it can change. Optimistically, it can change. Those who are believers who hear the call of God, who respond to the Holy Spirit, who are, who are sensitive to God himself, can, according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, can be eager to maintain the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. He goes on and he says, we badly need this study of unity. And he, he says, but listen to this. He says, but he says, consider our attitudes. We have this casual attitude toward unity, a dismissive attitude toward uni unity that is incredibly dangerous for three reasons. And he gives the three. He says, one, when our attitude toward unity is like this, it's, it shows that... <coughs> It's dangerous for these three reasons, sorry. God is disgusted with it. God is for unity, and our, when our attitude is casual toward it, he says God is disgusted with it. And the second reason, it says the world is confused by it. Why is the church so disunified? What, what's going on? The world is confused by it. Number three, and this is more intense, he says, if you are so casual and so dismissive, dismissive about it, this is Francis Chan. He's saying, he says, it, it may be evidence that the Holy Spirit is not in us. I'll, I'll quantify and soften it a little bit. It could be a point that you need to examine yourself. Or maybe you are quenching the Holy Spirit or ignoring the Holy Spirit. But guess what? The optimistic part, it could change quickly. It could change on the dime simply by the grace of repentance in your life. Boom, you turn, and you're in a whole totally different direction. We also know in John chapter seven, that G 17 that Jesus prayed for uni unity. He points to the, his relationship with God the Father. He says, we are one. And so his basic prayer in John 17 is that this same love that's between the Father and the Son would also be what? In the church. Okay? Um... Yeah, there's so much I want to say. But we'll go to the next one. The second gospel fruit is sympathy. As your heart and thoughts are aligned with the gospel, rooted in gospel truth, the fruit is to be the grace of sympathy. This literally means <coughs> Paul's, I mean, Peter's shifting from having the same mind now to having the same heart. And simply it means to feel the same for others. A lot of times we think about, this is my feeling, this is how I feel, but it's really to get into the emotions and to the thoughts of other people and to try to experience what they're feeling and go through the ups in life. When people, when things go well in other people's life, you rejoice with them. When things go through, go through more difficult times, you mourn 
with them. When someone loses a job or maybe loses a, a child or loses their house, you mourn with them. Uh, when they experience injustice, you mourn with them. Um, there's a place to lament these injustices with other people. And so, again, you could say, I lament with you online, or you can lament with people in person, sitting next to them in relationship with other people. And so, Peter's directing this to us, and he's begging this question, do we do so with our spiritual family, our local church? Number three, the third spiritual fruit is brotherly love. Brotherly love. This is kind of where we get the idea of the city of Philadelphia. But brotherly love basically talks about recognizing this theological reality that God the Father adopted us into his amazing family. And now we are what? Brothers and sisters in Christ? And so I, I have brothers and sisters biologically. Naturally, I wanted God's best for them. Um, there are times that, you know, as brothers and sisters, we give each other a hard time. Um, maybe joke with each other or chase them with a cactus and say, you know, I'm going to poke you or whatever. Um, you always have different sibling rivalries. But the end game, you always want the best for your siblings. And the same token, and I think even a much deeper level, as the body of Christ, as an uncommon community, we practice and exercise brotherly and sisterly love for one another. That means we connect with one another. We have brothers and sisters um, in our home. Um, we, we eat with them. We relate to them. And not just to the ones that are like us and the ones that fit our personality better, our personality or ethnic profile. I know we do this profiling in our head. Stop profiling like that. This is not Jesus' way. Profile according to the gospel. And just say, hey, this person is human, made in the image of God with a soul. He or she is my brother or sister. I'm going to relate to them accordingly to in relationship to the gospel for God's glory and for the common good. I, I want us truly, by God's grace, to be an ungodly community. But I'm going to stop saying this word if we don't make progress in this. If we don't make tangible progress each week relating to people not like us. We can't say that we've arrived if we're hanging out with the same two or three people every single week and saying, hey, we've arrived. We have one close little friendship. Your heart has to expand broader than that for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the city. Number four, the gospel finds, the gospel fruit number four is tenderheartedness. If indeed, truly, your heart is rooted in God's gospel story, not into the narrative that Eve fell, fell for, but rooted in the gospel, you will be tenderhearted in the context of the local church, in context of the relationships here. The word tenderhearted, it's a fascinating word. It refers to an emotion that reaches down to your intestines, to, to your bowels. So this is something that you feel viscerally. Um, it's an emotion that <clears throat> is deep down. It's not just like I casually have this tender heart to you or just like I'm kind of feeling obligated because my pastor's putting this pressure on me. No, it's, it's deep down. You, you feel it emotionally. It's worse than the, the vomit that I wanted to do after these virtual games. It, it is something so compelling that <clears throat> you are tender hearted and not hard hearted. 
and really the only way you can get there is not uh, is not uh just telling yourself over and over, I gotta be tenderhearted. Really, it's when the gospel really rips you inside and out, and you're just overwhelmed by the grace of God in your life, and it pours over in your relationship to others that you hurt with those who hurt, you suffer with those who suffer. You want to get into the lives and support those who have been abused or harassed or those who are lonely. Number five, gospel fruit number five is do so with humility of mind. Many times we think so highly of ourselves, and he's saying, hey, no, we are to have humble minds, to think as Christ thought, um, to get behind what a humble mind is, is the opposite of proud, is the opposite of arrogant, is the opposite of conceited, is to recognize that we don't deserve anything more than hell. And anything we do have, and everything we do have, is because of God's grace. He is the one who's given us abilities. He's the one who's given us talents, skills, possessions. Those are all gifts from God. So the fact that you have something that someone else doesn't have, that's not because of you. It's because of God. But many times I feel that I sense, and I am this way too sinfully. I, I could say I, I have this, and maybe like I just think oh, I have this basketball or soccer skill, and I just want to relate to basketball and soccer people because they're just easier for me to relate to. But at the end of the day, if I'm going to live in light of the gospel, I can't, can't just think of soccer and basketball people. i got to think of people who like sewing and shopping and talking or just, just being together <laughs> and just sitting there and having a presence with each other. And that's hard for me because I just want to move, move, move. So I'm like, let's talk and walk at least. And so I, that's, a, that's a big step for me. Let's hang out and let's walk at the same time. So in humility of mind. Um, the best picture of what this looks like is found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. It's a beautiful picture of what Paul wants in, in the life of a gospel-centered community. He says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation from the Spirit. In other words, if there's any kind of Christianity that comes with you that is rooted in the faith of the gospel, any affliction, any sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. Okay, I want you to know one mind doesn't mean that everyone needs to think theologically exactly the same. I'm not saying that. But <clears throat> one mind basically basically means to affirm the main tenets of the gospel. That God is the creator. Jesus is the son and the redeemer. And the Holy Spirit, well, it does a number of things. It, it regenerates. It leads. It guides. It convicts. And it, it sends us and it forms the Holy Spirit. And to be of one mind, if I can make the most simple analogy, is to be like the body of Christ. We are diverse. We come from many different backgrounds. But your human body, what? Functions for one purpose, to live well for your, your physical self. Some of the things happen through thought. Some of the things happen automatically. Likewise, in a local church, we have a common purpose. is to glorify God and to be the body of Christ for one another and for the city that God has placed us. That's what it means to be of one mind, to work together for this common goal, together for the gospel. 
Paul goes on, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. This is so, such a strong negative command that covers a lot of stuff. I'm like thinking in my mind, okay, you know, it, it challenges everything. Who I relate to, who I eat with, who I talk with, who I hang out with, who I pray for, who I serve, who I relate to, so many things. Um, <clears throat> do, <clears throat> who I connect with uh, in terms of different backgrounds, different social and economic. Do I have this selfish ambition within me? But Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition ambition or conceit. In contrast, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. My friends, if we are like Christ and we adopt this perspective of how we are to live our life, it will radically change how we relate to each other big time. A lot of us, including myself, needs to begin at really step one of the Christian life. Die to self. Recognize that you have been crucified in Christ, and the life you now live is what? By faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is not just like, oh, I just believe. No, faith includes an action that follows in real life. We can't just say, I just had this faith way back 20 years ago or one year ago. No, it plays itself out in real life, not virtual reality Christianity, which is no Christianity whatsoever. And I understand, I know I'm taking these buzzwords, and I'm, I'm going to twist it again. There's this buzzword, a phrase called cancel culture. We just want to cancel all this culture. For the church of Jesus Christ, hear me loud and clear. May we never cancel the culture of serving one another and being Christ toward one another. May we never counsel this culture of this. Do nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility count one another more significant than yourself. This is a culture, brothers and sisters, that I want to redeem. I want to lift up together. Don't kill this culture. When we hear this in the world, we say, church, no, we, we are going to hold together. We're going to fight and esteem a gospel culture at Rooted Church. I know it's easy to get lazy. It is so easy to get lazy because that just requires no effort, no mo, no motivation. I'm just going to sit and live virtually. It's easy to be lazy. And a lot of what's happened in the last 15 months, it cultivates spiritual laziness. It cultivates what? complacency. I'm going to redeem this word for God's glory. We don't want that kind of complacency in our spiritual lives. We have to fight it every single day. It's easy to be passive. It makes much more effort to be active. And again, I'm pointing to myself, three fingers at me, Gary Lee, because I have been guilty of all of this. And I also want to receive, and I want you to receive God's grace moving forward. Next, roots in evil distorts our ability to reflect God's glory. Okay, this comes from verse 9. Peter says, repay, don't repay evil for, e <coughs> for evil or reviling for reviling. I understand 
when the heat is on and there's pressure and things aren't going away. There's temptation, what? To return evil for evil or verbally insult people. Jesus, Paul, and Peter all say, this is not the way of the gospel. This is not the way of the master. We are to live countercultural lives and respond differently. And we'll see what that looks like. But at the, <clears throat> the bottom of, of this, when you feel like you need to repay evil of you, like treat someone with a cold shoulder or just say, I, I'm just not going to deal with you, and you just close down, something other than the gospel, than Jesus Christ, is in your heart that's driving you. I want you to know that. It's not just that other person that you're up to. There's something deep down in your heart that is selfish, self-absorbed, that says, I want to be king, and you're listening to the narrative of the world. You're listening to the narrative of Satan. If I would take it another step forward, you're basically a Satan follower at that point. It's tough to hear. You don't like that. I know. I don't like that. But I'm also a Satan follower at times. But in the end day, I keep coming back. I want to hear the story of the gospel. I want to be a Christ follower. Root, the next section, the latter part of verse 9. Roots in the gospel call to reflect one who has been blessed in reality. So this is a little tricky grammar piece. Um, Peter goes and makes a contrast, and he says here, but on, con but on the contrary, bless for the one, <coughs> for, excuse me, for to this you were called that you may attain a blessing. So there's a lot of little nuances here. I'll try to make it as simply as possible. If you have been insulted, you have been offended physically or verbally or whatever. Um, Peter's saying to respond is this way. Rec go back to the cross and recognize that I have been given the grace of forgiveness. Not anything I have done. It, you, you simply received it by faith. And he's basically saying when someone offends you, bless them back on the basis of the gospel. This person hasn't done anything um, worthy of your forgiveness, but may the narrative of the gospel be the reason, and every reason, you say, I'm going to bless this person back. I'm going to respond in such a way and ask and speak in such a way that <clears throat> I'm going to seek to bless this person. Can I pray for you? Can I serve you? Can I help you? The one that offends you. And so, yes, I understand the life local church. We're probably offending each other a lot here and there, everywhere. Don't even realize it. And Jesus says, radically embrace the gospel and respond by blessing one another. Not having a hissy fit. It doesn't say that here. It doesn't. I just don't see it yet. Um, verse 11. Roots in the gospel reflect God's glory verbally. Verse 11. This is a, such a fascinating verse. I, I've never really paused and really munched on this, but I, the sermon took a long time. I rewrote it several times over. But he, Peter puts a statement out there, and he says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days. He, he states this, and literally he's basically saying, hey, if you want to live the Christian life, a gospel-centered life, and exercise kingdom living here and now, he's basically saying, hey, Christians, hey, church, here's an invitation to you to participate in this Christian living, in this gospel-centered life, in this amazing race that God calls us to. It's simply in this phrase, whoever desires to love life and see good 
days. And I'm like, this doesn't mean that everything goes your way. It's going to be bright and sunny with no clouds in your life. No, it means to say, hey, I'm going to take a perspective that I'm going to live by faith and not by sight. I'm going to cling to Christ when things go wrong. I'm going to bank on his promises all the days of my life. It's to say, I'm going to love this life in such a way, I'm going to look at everything from God's perspective and not my self-centered, virtual perspective of life that I can't see much beyond myself. He says, I'm, it's gonna, it means I'm going to see everything and do everything I can to see things from God's perspective. That's what it means to love life and see good days. Warren Wiersbe says this, it is the opposite of a pessimistic attitude. Hey, if I were to take a survey during the last 15, minute, 15, 15 months, excuse me, have you had an, a pessimistic attitude at, at any point? <laughs> We've had pessimistic attitudes, right? There are times I felt like months would go by, we would talk more about the pandemic than Jesus Christ because we're so consumed by it. A pessimistic attitude, like, Ecclesiastes 2, verses 17, where Solomon says this. He says, therefore, I hate life, for all is vanity. That's a, a perspective, a pessimistic attitude. And so where, where he takes this and captures this thought, we can decide to endure life and make it a burden. We can escape life through running away from a battle or enjoy life because we know what? God is in control. He is sovereign over every facet of your life. I just want to say because he cares for your life. And Paul has the same idea in mind. I, I love this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Turn there if you have your Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 through 11. Look what Paul goes through in his life and what he has to say about his life. And as you reread this, think about the worst thing that's happened to you in your life in the last 15 months. The worst thing possible. And look at what Paul says as he's living out of the gospel. I'm trying to give you time to get there. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. Is it 1 Corinthians? I might, it might be 2 Corinthians. Tracy, double check with me. Is this, is, but we have this treasure of jars. 2 Corinthians, my mistake. I, it looked, it felt... 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 11. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses chapter 4, verse 7 through 11. Paul says this, and this is his perspective to, as he lives out the gospel. He says this, but we have this treasure in jars. Um, so simple, basic, ordinary clay pots, jars, to do what? To show the surpassing power that belongs to God and not to us. He goes, but we were afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down and not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Verse 11, for we who live are always being given over to the death of for 
Christ or Jesus' sake. Again, another hint of purpose cause. So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal bodies. This is our vision and mission of rooted, tri- rooted church. Be rooted in the gospel to reflect God's glory in the midst of difficulties and hardships of the worst kind. He says, what? May the power of God be manifested in you and I and in his church. Verse 11. Roots in the gospel reflect God's glory in both hating evil and doing good. This is still predicated on this thought that we looked at before. To love life and to see good days. He says, let us turn away from evil and do good. We'll leave it at that. If you want to love life and see good days, we would go on in verse 11. He says that we are <coughs> to seek peace and to pursue it. Um, this is the area where I think our Christian maturity plays itself out. When we are offended or hurt and when things are difficulty with a particular individual, do we pursue peace? Or do we say, I'm going to declare war on you? Hey, Jesus is super clear. If you're a child of God in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. This is where maturity is played out. In Romans chapter 12, verse 8, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with It's basically saying, hey, there's potential judgment upon your head if you continue in this evil way. I just want to forward us into the future and ask this basic question. When you meet God and the Lord Jesus Christ on Judgment Day and he asks you this basic question, did you love me and have you loved others? What is he going to say when, he said, when you say back to him, I put a sticker on my Facebook, on my social media? What is he going to say that we, we mentally talk to each other about it all the time, but not actually loved each other? Will he say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant? Or will we be like a tree, planted like streams of water, bearing this amazing fruit and blessing one another, overflowing in such a way that the world cannot help but notice what? Our God lives. 
Dylan, help us remind us of the gospel a little further.